0: You have been with me for the last two episodes. This is the third and final episode of a three-part series on answering random teacher questions about stress, drama, or the brain. And I'm always so pleased and impressed by some of these questions. I'm like, ooh, do I have answers for these? (laughs) And they are also just my own thoughts, mostly based on research. Um, But uh, again, just open thoughts. So. You can take it or leave it or choose to do the research yourself. So let's jump right in because there are like five or six questions I want to answer today. So how do we ask students about traumatic events in their lives to gain knowledge and show we care without being invasive or upsetting them? This is a tricky question. Starting off strong. (laughs) Um, One, not every child knows that they've had trauma in their life. In fact, I would say most children do not because the traumatizing things, even if it's something that's not as obvious, like emotional abuse or living with a narcissist, those aren't areas where kids would even know what those things are. So they certainly wouldn't recognize them. And because they live in those environments day in and day out, they don't recognize them as abnormal or wrong. So real hard to ask kids about trauma because they don't even necessarily know that they, they have experienced trauma or they don't even really maybe believe that what they have experienced is traumatic. So there's, I can't remember the quote, but there's a really great quote in in a book I use for the courses I developed for University of Pennsylvania. It, I can't remember the quote exactly, but it said something along the lines of You don't need to know a child's trauma to be able to help them because the details of the trauma don't change your approach to them. So one, if you know a child's traumatized, you just want to start working on those repair strategies, building the relationship first, because you have to have trust and then working on the things to kind of rebuild their brain and neural systems, which could be a whole other episode of of telling you what that is, but you don't need to know the traumatic events and you don't need the details to be able to help them. And as far as having the details go and learning about the traumatic events, probably best to have that happen with someone who is certified to uh, hold that information and know how to handle it with care. Not that we as educators can't handle sensitive information with care, but we don't want to re-traumatize them by having them relive the event by sharing it. So... What I would do instead as an educator is just open up the space for them to share if they so choose. So you could um, say something like, I'm noticing something seems off and I just want to let you know I'm here to listen if you need it. And one of the most beautiful prompts I've ever heard used in a situation like that is when someone decides they want to share prefacing it with, do you want me to listen, just listen or listen and respond? Because sometimes people, kids, they don't want us to respond and we're so quick to jump in and help, but they just want someone to listen. So ask them after you offer the space, do you want me to listen or listen and respond? Just listen or listen and respond. What are the typical signs of stress? Oh, this is hard too, because stress looks different for every person. So what looks like stress for one person may not for another. For example, I'm more of like an internalizer when it comes to stress. So what does stress look like for me? For me, it's like, I feel it in my body. My body starts to deteriorate and hurt and ache, but no one can see that, especially, you know, maybe if you're like hunched over, like wincing in pain, but like with a high pain tolerance and a person that doesn't really show that no one would really know. In fact, I would say probably the most stressful periods of my life, people have not known that I was under an immense amount of stress. So yes, I might handle stress well, and I don't show stress easily. So for kids, even for adults, signs of chronic stress, traumatic stress, eh, just unusual behavior, abnormal behavior. And that doesn't need to be like abnormal in the range of like all kids abnormal for that person or abnormal for that kid. If you continuously, especially like cross a couple of days, see them doing things they don't normally do like big behavior shifts. That's something I tune into. So that's typically a sign of stress in some format. How can teachers be sensitive to trauma or stress while still managing high expectations and holding students accountable? Gosh, these questions are good. Um, oh, Man, yeah, this is hard, uh, because I do a lot of sharing and talking about like the nervous system and something called the window of tolerance. And there's this window of tolerance where it's how much can we tolerate before we're we're kind of pushed into this upper zone or lower zone that that is like a stressed out zone, and what amount of stress is tolerable because there is appropriate stress. It is good to be stressed in in small doses that you have the support or the capability of recovering from. For example, when you learn something new, it is stressful. Even if you don't feel stressed, it is a micro stressor to your system. That's okay because that uh, helps you to grow and become resilient and we have to learn things. But we also need to recognize when it's too much learning or too far beyond us. So kind of that differentiation and scaffolding and things like that. So knowing when a child is leaving their window of tolerance and going into that top or bottom zone, which is that you know nervous system dysregulation, is hard to tell because that zone is different for everyone. Everyone's nervous system is is has a different baseline. So What will push one person or child out of their window of tolerance will not for another. So this is tricky. I would say instead of trying to guess what makes them feel stressed, my response is typically to teach them what stress or anxiety or both feels like in their brain and their body. And when they feel that to come to me or to share it. Whether it be like a visual sign, a nonverbal sign, a note, something that lets me know it's better for them to tell you they have reached their limit than for you to try and figure out yourself if they reach their limit. And that takes me back to kind of, okay, so what if a child has a pretty low limit and they're not meeting expectations and how do we hold them accountable? It's hard because we have expectations too as a teacher and our job in a lot of ways rely is or <laughs> rely on to pass standardized testing scores and uh, some people's salaries are independent on that so it looks like we're not being a good teacher if our students aren't meeting our expectations or uh, being held accountable so it's a little bit of a gray fuzzy area and a really tricky one um my s- idea would be to again teach them what stress and anxiety feels like in the body, give them the space to share when that's happening and also give them the resources to move beyond it. So this can be modeling it yourself. This can be teaching it in small doses, but what gets them to the next level? We want micro doses of things that help them get closer to the expectations. So how can we um, support them to at least get closer would be my, my um, advice and including them in the discussion of that, because they often have answers to some of these things, and they probably have pretty high standards for themselves if we include them in that conversation. How do we identify students who are stressed but do not have an obvious indicator of it? That, that is me. <laughs> and this is hard. Uh, when I do trauma trainings, I always tell people to kind of tune into the quiet students too, because we tend to tune into the loud, aggressive ones, but the quiet ones really can fly under the radar and, uh, be hurting even more. So again, look for students who are like socially disconnected, who you know, not shy, but like another level of like, just not even desiring or showing interest and in interacting with peers, kids that are not speaking, not socially engaging, not, um, very expressive of feeling, very emotional. Like, uh, what's the word? Um, Ash, I can't think of the word, uh, like I want to say sappy, but sappy is not the right word and not sobby either. Cause I'm not even sure that sobby is a word, <laughs> but like teary in, in, but not like outward cry scream <laughs> uh, and just creating an environment in a space where people can, kids can come to you again, even if it's not verbally, like a card like a color-coded card system where they can like flip a card over on their desk or put a card in your box to let you know like i'm not okay today uh because sometimes just holding a little bit of space for them is all they need to get regulated um so i would create some type of system for them to be able to express where they're at because those kids we don't see as easily and do like temperature checks periodically throughout the day where you're checking in with students like how are you feeling like we anxious right now. Are we stressed out? Like, where's your energy? That's helpful too. So more preventative versus reactive. Is it possible to have flashbacks of traumatic situations with no warning or are there always certain triggers? Hmm. Um. Here's the thing that I would say. I, I don't know that we necessarily get a warning because you wouldn't probably recognize the warning or you wouldn't recognize the trigger. I would say that in the majority of situations, there's probably a trigger. It's just we think there's no trigger because we don't see it. Like a trigger could be something as simple as a sound or a smell. Well, we don't see or hear the sound or smell, maybe. And we think that the child has been um kind of triggered with no warning. Well, there was a warning or there was a trigger. It was just something that we didn't recognize. And a lot of times triggers are things that we don't recognize because they're not triggering us. So I would say, is it possible to have a flashback without a a warning? Yes. Is it possible to have a flashback without a trigger? Yeah, I think so. Because we always have swirling thoughts and um, I could see just a thought randomly popping into mind. Why it pops into mind? I don't know that something necessarily has to trigger it. So those are those people that like cry out of nowhere. Like if they're um, depressed or sad or grieving or going through something like I'm not sure that they really have to have a trigger for all for, to, to cry all of a sudden. So think about it from kind of that perspective. Best practices for educators to manage their stress while in the thick of student stress. Ooh, are we not in that now? <laughs> um, this is also one that could be an entire another episode. So I'm just going to give you like a one, two, three or something, because there's so many things you could do. Um, one is be preventative. So don't wait until you feel too stressed out to do something. I- embed things in your day with the whole class or the micro breaks you have as an educator to do something to calm yourself down. Like I used to do like deep breathing before students came in, deep breathing at lunch, deep breathing when I went to the bathroom, deep breathing at the end of the day. And it was more preventative than reactive. The other thing I would do is when my body feels like it's whew, wildly out of control, I just step outside, whether it's 10 degrees or 100 degrees, step outside, get a breath of, get, a breath of fresh air, and also just change your scenery for a moment. And I would say the last, just take care of your body. So make sure you're eating well and make sure you are drinking enough water and try to get enough sleep. Hard things to do sometimes, but uh, simple things that just keep your body functioning well. So to wrap up our show, I'm going to give you a try at home tip, which I know you're all, some of you are going to love and hate at the same time, but (laughs) uh, ice and heat. And I don't mean like put ice in your body and then put like a heating pad on your body. I mean, there is extreme benefit to like getting in a sauna and then sitting in an ice, an ice bath right after. I typically like to do the ice bath and the sauna after. Uh, I, I'll i be honest, I don't know the research if, if that is less or more effective. I just hate being cold. So I need some kind of motivator to get into the ice bath, which would be a sauna. Otherwise, I'll feel so stressed about being in the ice bath that it won't really be very enjoyable. So why this regulates your nervous system and does a lot of other beneficial things for your body sounds a little weird, but if you really want to dig into it, Wim Hof, search the guy named Wim Hof, who's done a lot of research on this. And that's it for today's episode of Returning to Us podcast. Don't forget our try it at home tip, which is put your body in cold and put your body in hot. And if you want to know how much time to do that, it's kind of different for each person, in their body, just find Dr. Google. And um, if you are looking for more support in the areas of stress, trauma, behavior in the brain, I would love to be a part of that learning journey. So the organization I created called the Behavior Hub offers a range of supports from coaching to online courses, to group training, even university credit is offered from University of Pennsylvania for some of our courses. So if you want to learn more, shoot me an email through the Behavior Hub website or text me at 717-693-7744. Lock in to what you learned today, it helps you to remember those things. So what does that mean? Um, Maybe share it with someone else or talk about it or reach it to somebody else or leave a comment below with your biggest takeaway. And until next episode, I am Lauren Spiegelmeyer and thank you for joining me.